Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. This episode is airing on August 1st, 2023. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon back with you for another Tuesday morning episode. Today, I am sharing an interview that I did with historical fiction author Hazel Gaynor. This was such a cool opportunity as I've been a fan of Hazel's writing for a number of years. And just the ability to actually sit down and talk with her was amazing. So in this interview, we discuss her latest novel, The Last Lifeboat. And if you've never read one of Hazel's novels, I highly, highly recommend them. And of course, at the end of that interview, I will have some tips as to some of the best new releases, or at least the ones that we here at Book Bistro consider to be the best. So let's get started. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Book Bistro Podcast. There we have our usual Facebook page where we keep track of our Wednesday reads and also post information about the Friday episodes. We also have a Facebook listener group that you're welcome to join. And if you prefer a different type of listener group, you can contact us and ask about our WhatsApp group. Both groups are pretty small, not super high traffic, and we would love to have you. If you want to get in touch with us off of social media, you can do so by sending an email to thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for our main hosting page where you can find information on the podcatchers that make Book Bistro available to you, you can find that information in our show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon. And today I am here with author Hazel Gaynor, and we are discussing her novel, The Last Lifeboat. And this was released here in the U.S. on June 13th. Hazel, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Shannon. Thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. Can we start with a brief introduction to The Last Lifeboat in case listeners haven't had a chance to read it or see any of the pre-publication buzz? Of course, yeah. So The Last Lifeboat is set in 1940 during the Second World War and is inspired by a really astonishing true story surrounding a group of children who were evacuated from Britain overseas to Canada. Uh, and the ship that they were being evacuated on was hit by a torpedo from a German U-boat in the mid-Atlantic. And a lifeboat of survivors from that torpedo ship uh, were missed in the rescue operation and were lost at sea for eight days. And The Last Lifeboat is my fictional interpretation of that true event and is told from the point of view of two women, Alice, who finds herself in the lost lifeboat with 
children and other adults. And Lily, who is a mother in London, who is enduring the nightly bombing raids of the Blitz, and hears this awful news about the ship her children were being evacuated on. And it's really about how those two women's lives and fates collide in this astonishing story of human drama and hope and survival. You always manage to find these like little known nuggets of history. And I'm always so excited to see what you're going to be writing about because it's usually something that either I didn't know about at all, like this, or something that like I'd heard of, you know, it was mentioned in a in a history book or something, but didn't really know many details of. Yeah, um, and, and that is exactly what appeals to me as an author. So finding those hidden histories, those little treasures of a an event like World War II, where we feel we may have heard all of the events that took place, but there are so many untold stories, often from voices that would have been a lot quieter at times. So the voices of children, the voices of women. Um, and it's just incredible as, a, as an author to find those stories and be able to sort of excavate them from the archive and weave your own imagined narrative around that. So it's, it's just a joy, you know, when you find something I think for readers, it's always fascinating, isn't it, to find something new within a very familiar event like the Second World War. Um, and, and that you know, to read something, a fictional account of something that actually happened, I think is is always adds an extra layer for me. So just, you know, really fabulous to find. You know, I, I, I go digging quite often in archives and read a lot to find. And it was a word. It was one word, sea evacuees that found that helped me find this story. I, I didn't know anything about evacuees leaving Britain entirely. I thought they had just gone from the cities and towns to the countryside where it was safer. Right. So that one word, sea evacuees, just unlocked this whole other episode of the war for me, which, which was fascinating. Right, because I think we've all heard about children that were evacuated from the cities and brought to the countryside and lived you know, with families there during the war. But like you, I sort of thought that was the extent of the like evacuations of British children. Yeah, so that at the beginning of war, at the outbreak of war, the government had a plan already in place for what they would do in the, in the event of war. It was called Operation Pied Piper. And three million children were taken from the cities and towns most at risk of bombing to the rural countryside where they stayed with families. And we, you know, we're very familiar with those images of children on the stage and platforms with their little gas masks and suitcases and luggage, uh, sort of identification luggage labels. Um, but to hear about this second wave of mass evacuation. So this was a government initiative started in June, 1940, when at that time, Hitler and the Nazi party had occupied France. So they were perilously close to Britain's shores and it was widely believed that they would invade and so therefore areas on the south coast which had once been seen as a safe haven for children moving from the likes of London and the big cities suddenly were the most dangerous places to be so they had to come up with a different plan 
And the government offered parents this choice of applying to have their children put on one of these CVAT chips or take the risk of keeping them at home when it was expected that the, the Hitler and the Nazis would invade or bomb. So just this agonising choice for parents. And to imagine putting your child on a ship sailing so far away to spend time with people you didn't know and to not know when they might come back was right. just so harrowing to me yeah I just I can't as I'm a mother and I I can't imagine how and how do you ever reconcile that choice um so yeah it was just a a, a big piece of the uh the war in Britain that, that I hadn't encountered before so once you kind of knew that this was the story that you wanted to tell how did you go about finding more information and then sort of weaving your own fictional narrative around this true event? Yeah, so there was actually quite a lot documented about this, the actual ship, the city of Benares that sailed from Liverpool to en route to Canada. That was the ship that was torpedoed. There was an awful lot written in archives and, and sort of war records about that ship and lots of survivor accounts of, you know, what it was like to be evacuated. Lots of accounts of that sort of excitement from the children at this big sea adventure they were about to undertake. Um, and also of the volunteers who accompanied them. So the government asked for adult volunteers to step forward to accompany these children as escorts on their journey. Um, and one woman, a music teacher from London called Mary Cornish, offered to volunteer and escort the children. She was on that torpedo ship and she ended up in this lifeboat of survivors after the ship went down. And she very much inspired my fictional character, Alice, who we share a lot of that drama with. She is in the lifeboat and we see all of what happens in the lifeboat from her point of view. Um, so I read the incredible first-person accounts, children when they grew up wanted to talk about this event and have written lots of very detailed accounts of what that was like. Um, there's incredible books about the event as a whole and about the evacuations as a whole. And then I just read lots of information about what life was like in London and, and in Britain at, at this particular time during the war, what the mood was like, what the government was saying, what did people believe was going to happen. So that really inspired lots of voices have come together in my character of Lily, a mother who really represents lots of women uh, who experienced the war in a really different way to obviously how lots of men experienced the war. So, yeah, a, a really a combination of broad brush research into the war at that particular time and very detailed accounts of uh, what it was like to be on those CVAC ships and particularly the experience of being in that lifeboat um, that came from the people who were there. So do you sometimes struggle with knowing like how much you want to fictionalize and how much you want to kind of retain from like, actual research and events that you know existed? Yeah, it's always, I think, any historical novelist um, has to make a decision you know we're obviously writing a novel so you're first and foremost um wanting to create a compelling story with 
characters that your readers will root for, um, you know, and to create that drama and tension on the page. So I think for any novelist setting a story around a real fact, um, events in history, it's to understand what it was really like, but then to, I personally like the freedom to imagine and to create and not feel inhibited by having to stick too closely, too rigidly to the facts of a real person's life. So that's why I made the decision, for example, to create my fictional Alice rather than tell the actual story of Mary Cornish. Um, because obviously you you have to be very careful then as to how far you stray from the truth because that's a real person's experience. Right. Whereas if you take your version of that, I can create, you know, other aspects to my fictional Alice that can create more drama on the page, more tension for the reader, more emotion. So I I always do take a judgment. I mean, I've written about um, other real events like the Titanic. Um, and again, that was, I made a conscious decision. I fictionalized the group of passengers on that ship because it gave me the freedom, if you like, to create their lives rather than having to just retell an actual life. And I think there's a, there's a big difference in that. So when you are looking for like this sort of information so that you can know kind of what life was like for your characters in the time kind of before and during the events that you're that you're covering do you kind of go back and look at some of those things like I'm guessing depending on the issues that you know you're writing about you'll have more or less research available to you like World War II I'm assuming there's, you know, a lot of documentation that you can you can look at the same with like the Titanic. But mm. I'm thinking of the novel that you wrote about the London flower sellers. Um and just sort of how like how do you find some of that information that is perhaps harder to just like you can't necessarily just go and you know do a bunch of research and find droves of information. Yeah, and I, I- I think, you know, you're, you're often faced with it's it's feast or famine. So you something like the Second World War or Titanic, there's almost too much information. It, it's where do you stop, not where right. do you start? You know, you can keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. At some point, you have to make a decision. You've built your foundation of knowledge to just inform your writing then. So that was certainly the case. I had to sort of pull back from the research for The Last Lifeboat um, and actually start writing my novel with something like A Memory of Violets, which is set around the um, slums and Covent Garden of Victorian London, inspired actually by the um, story of My Fair Lady, Pygmalion. Um, yes. That was really about <laughs> just understanding what life was like in those rookeries and slums of Victorian London. So that's more about understanding where you are. Um, and I, 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 again, I researched the lives of there are lots of records of real lives like the little flower sellers in my book who lived in those times. So there's lots. It's astonishing, actually, how much social history there is. And there's a, a an incredible book by a man called Henry Mayhew, who did a sort of social diary of London at that time. So once you start looking and, of course, Google is a wonderful thing <laughs> to help firstly find where you want to be and then often it's visiting museums it's drilling down and finding those um lost accounts really of of you know people who were there at the time that can really add 
lovely detail and those little tidbits that really bring a, a narrative to life. But with the last lifeboat, it was very much, you know, the extremes of understanding what was happening in the war. And then the other extreme was, well, what did they eat in the lifeboat? What were in the survival stores? Ah, yes. Um, you know, ac accounts of them saying they were presented with tinned tinned salmon as part of their rations from the survive, survival stores, but they couldn't swallow the tinned salmon because it was too dry and their mouths were too dry. So just, again, those incredible pieces of information that really bring a story of survival like this to life, uh, you know, and a lot of my own imagination as well about how terrifying it would be to be lost in the Atlantic, um, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a war, and separated from family and friends. So, of course, we all have those fears. And a, a story like this allows you to write them onto the page. Yeah, I cannot imagine what that would have been like to be in a little tiny lifeboat in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, and, you know, I think we we sort of look at those events from the past. And, and obviously, it was incredibly hard then to find something and it took a while for people to realize that there had been a lifeboat missed because another ship that was torpedoed one of its lifeboats had been counted amongst the recovered lifeboats so they thought they had all the 12 lifeboats from this seabat ship and oh. it was only a few days in that they realized actually we've, we've included a lifeboat from another boat so where's the 12th lifeboat from the, the ship that went down um and again, you know, technology today can can help search and rescue efforts like that. At the time, you didn't have that. Um, so it was very much a state of parents were told that their children were unfortunately lost when the ship went down um, and had literally mm. received that telegram, only to be told, you know, several days later that some miracle had occurred. So it, it just, again, has all the elements of human drama and incredible hope that that threaded amongst these characters in the lifeboat they despite all the odds seeming to be against them they they somehow held it together and were, were, were sure that they were going to get rescued um but just you know isn't it astonishing how how often people step up and do things they wouldn't ever have expected of themselves in those desperate situations and it it certainly played out in this situation I'm always fascinated by, you know, what we learn about the things that people did, things that, you know, even like at the time were unthinkable to us. And yet, like people actually did these things and often survived them. Yeah. And, and again, I think we often look back at history and we hear of events like this. And I think part of us thinks, oh, well, yes, um, people in 1940 were somehow better prepared to face this excruciating decision of whether to evacuate your child or not, and were somehow better prepared to cope with that. And of course they weren't. They weren't in any way prepared for the nightly bombing raids that, that, that fell on the cities. And, you know, I think we do look back in on history and, and sort of forget that those people were just like we are. You know, and this event happened to them without any warning and they were no better prepared than, than we would be. But often what we see is people finding these resources in themselves, this inner strength to somehow cope. And I think we can, we 
you can almost relate to that better now having come through the pandemic because I think that was our generation's event where we weren't prepared life changed beyond all measure and yet we all somehow found a way to muddle through to cope to find different ways of doing things and it's exactly what people did in the war so I think we maybe now have a slightly better understanding of what that would have been like um, that we do somehow draw on resources we maybe didn't know we had and I, I'm fascinated by that I really I loved exploring Alice and Car- uh, Lily's characters in that way you know sort of what could they do to cope with this that they may not have believed that they would do I find myself wondering if you know years from now people will be writing these types of books about sort of you know what would be considered little known events surrounding the pandemic or you know just all kinds of things that are happening in our own sort of current lives like what what will people take from those years from now and form into into fiction it's fascinating isn't it to think what 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 is our history looking like to somebody in the future yes Um, I mean I think we're all so well documented now because we narrate our own lives all the time through social media. Um, I often think, how on earth does somebody pick through all of that? <laughs> when, they, when there's one thing looking at the museum archive, it's another thing looking through social media of millions of people. And yeah, absolutely. And and to actually find the truth. I mean, obviously, during a time of war, there was a lot of propaganda. But now, I mean, it, you can look at a picture online and not know if that's real or faked or enhanced or whatever. Right. Um, of course, we're always fascinated with an event that we haven't experienced and and want to kind of understand how did people cope? What, what happened? So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's already fiction written about the pandemic. It came out very quickly. <laughs> So goodness knows what people will make of it sort of 20, 30 years from now when they're looking back going, gosh, that really happened. Yeah. Because I think of sort of my own fascination with the flu pandemic of 1918. Mm. Like I, for some reason, am in love with books about that pandemic, books about Mm. the plague. And so I'm thinking like years from now, like, are people going to be looking at our 2020, you know, COVID-19 pandemic and saying like, oh, you know, I want to read more books yeah. about this. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, I am fascinated as well by the 1918 pandemic. And, you know, when you look back at that and you see those photographs of people wearing face masks and, you know, we wouldn't possibly have thought about that before we had to experience it. So it does make those photographs look somehow very present. Um even though so much has happened in between. So, yeah, I think there's just this natural instinct, isn't there, to wonder about the past. And life looked, life looks very different from the past because of how it was documented and captured. But what I talk about a lot is that, you know, the person we see in a black and white photograph, of course, didn't walk around in black and white clothes. No. They wore colour the same as we do. And they felt things. They had the same emotions that we do. It's just that life was different then. But that that human emotion, you know, the the evergreen feelings of fear, love, hope, envy, they're always there regardless of what date it is. So, yeah, that really fascinates me as well. 
Do you have kind of a favorite historical event, like something that you haven't written about, but that you would one day like to? Um, I, I'm sure I have. I just haven't found it yet. <laughs> ah, so it's not one that you always, know about. Um, <laughs> I never know what my next book is until I find that aha moment. So, yeah, I think I've I've tended to write books set within the 20th century. So from, well, really from the end of the 19th century. So A Memory of Violets touched on the end of the 1800s. Right. Um, after that, it's really been, you know, the First World War, the Roaring Twenties, into the oh, Second yes, World the War. Girl from the in the 1950s. Yeah, Dolly and the Girl from Savoy. That was great fun. So sort of the aftermath of the war and those in-between years where everybody went a bit crazy. Um, so that was great, great fun to write. So I think I've kind of naturally tracked history um, without ever intending to, but I often don't know. I don't know. And for me, it's always the story. It's not, I'm not necessarily drawn to an era. It's an event or a story that captures my interest. And that if wherever that is in time is where I'll go. I don't think I'd ever go way back. I don't think I'd go far back, you know, to sort of the, the ancients or even the sort of 16th, oh, uh -huh. 17th century. Um, but, but yeah, I think it's, I'm sort of within my wheelhouse of 20th century up to the fifties, I think is where I naturally seem to be drawn, but what it is, is, is always a surprise to me until I find it. <laughs> do you ever kind of wonder like, what if I don't find that next thing? Or do you pretty much know that there's always going to be something somewhere that grabs your attention and speaks to you yeah there will and and I think what what I've learned over the years is I you know I have lots of ideas and potential ideas and it's re really about letting an idea percolate for a while and seeing what sticks and seeing also what what will make a compelling story so there's fascinating things but they don't always sort of work well as a novel so it's about I suppose interrogating ideas a bit more and, and thinking, you know, to me it's always what what excites me. What can I not wait to get to the best tomorrow to continue telling that story? Um, and I I have always found that thing. Sometimes it takes a little bit of rejecting a couple of ideas to find the one. Um, but I always find the one, and it's just that light bulb moment of this is it. This is it. We're, now we're good. We're we're off. <laughs> and then I can't wait to get started. Can you tell me anything about what readers can expect next from you now that the last lifeboat is in the world? I can tell you a little bit. <laughs> and again, a little bit is was, good. <laughs> this was very much one of those where, um, in a funny way, what I'm working on next has been with me for a very, very long time. But I almost had to leave it be until I found the right way to tell it. What I can tell you is it is set in the USA. It's my first book set entirely in the States. Um, and it is an origin story. So it's the first time I've done a reimagining. Re um, it's a story. I pitched it to my editor as a story you know very well, but a woman you don't. Um, and it's Midwest 1930s Dust Bowl era. And that's all I can oh say. <laughs> okay, I need this. And I'm so excited, so excited about it. It feels very different and yet still keeps my historical 
and all the emotions that I bring to a book. And I I, I can't wait to be more specific, hopefully soon. <laughs> oh, and is there anything um, that you're working on with, with Heather Webb? I know that the two of you have collaborated um, a few yes. times and I've loved what you've come up with. So I'm hoping that we'll also see another collaboration somewhere. Yes, thank you. And you'll be very pleased to hear we're currently working on that. So we, oh, beautiful. We have, uh, yeah, so Heather and I, I can tell you a little bit more about this one. So we're writing a, a, our fourth novel together, which is called Christmas with the Queen. And it is set in the 1950s through the first um, Christmas messages that the Queen gave every Christmas day, following on a tradition from her father and grandfather and it's really about how the Queen's Christmas message to the nation became rooted in British Christmas tradition. And it's involving a fictional royal chef and a fictional BBC journalist whose, I guess, lives, relationships and stories revolve around Queen Elizabeth II and her connection to Christmas and the tradition that it becomes. So it's really, we're just having such fun writing it. Um, and that will be released, I believe, in fall of 2024. So next next fall. That is amazing. And definitely another thing that I need to add to my <laughs> already like huge TBR pile. But that's okay. The bigger the pile, the better the I like better, it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So it is time for me to ask you my very favorite question. And that is, what have you read recently that you think the world should know about? Oh gosh, so many. Yay. <laughs> so I I'm very lucky I get to read lots of books early. Um so oh, often I, know. I, I want copies. to talk about a book. Yeah, and it's so I try and always talk about books that I maybe read a long time ago, but they're just out now. Um two in particular for anybody listening who enjoys historical fiction, a beautiful book out just at the moment by Kristen Harmel called The Paris Daughter. Um, Kristen writes such beautiful, heartfelt stories. And again, yes, a beautiful book about a mother's choice uh, in World War Two. And I adore Kristen as a human being anyway, but her books are very much a reflection of her. And just it's a beautiful book, incredibly successful. I think it's in the New York Times bestsellers at the moment. So that's one to look out for. And at the total opposite end of the spectrum, a book called Yellow Face by Rebecca Kwan, yes! who wrote Babel. <laughs> and is probably one of my favorite books this year so far. It's a literary thriller. It is big, bold, brave. Um, it's dark, it's witty, it's a searing look at the publishing industry, and it yes. talks about cancel culture, toxic relationships, who can write what. I just absolutely love it. It's, I read it in like two days, which is really fast for me. So Yellow Face is definitely, I think, should be on everyone's list this year. Oh, I just read it. We did a um, books about books episode, like very recently. Uh, okay, and yeah. that was one of my my picks for that episode because it, it just – was so so incredible it's one of those books I picked up yeah. and I was like oh I don't know you know I don't know if I'm gonna like this and then as soon as I yeah. started it I was like oh yes yes I will yeah the same it had me hooked in and I just flew through it's just it's such a great uh book choice for a book club there's so much to talk about the character there's so much you know to get your teeth into so 
Oh. Yeah, I, I I love that. And I'm current I've just started reading Babel because I haven't read that. Um so I'm I'm a new fan. <laughs> Is that a similar kind of like literary thriller or does that kind of go no. more into like fantasy? Yeah, it's fantasy. It's very different. Um, so it's it's not often you'd see an author do such totally different books in close proximity. Um, and she wrote the Poppy War trilogy prior to Babel. But Babel is a, a huge, chunky book, um, very fantasy, sort of, you know, a very original piece in its own right. And then out she comes with Yellowface. So I just, I love that she's gone so different. I think it's brilliant. So yeah, really enjoyed yeah, that. I read the Poppy War back when it first came out. Um, and then I saw Babel and I was like, oh, you know, I'll have to pick this up. But I never actually did it. Um, yeah. But Yellowface, I, I did. And I loved it so much. Yeah, and it's such a cool cover, and yeah, you can't miss it. I mean, if, if in the States it has the same cover as it does here, it's literally just bright yellow with a pair of eyes that just follow you around. So it's, oh, it's that, brilliant. that's that's very cool. Um, I read the audiobook, um, and it was just, it was so incredible. Yeah, yeah, an audio is, so actually I was just listening recently to a sample of the audio of The Last Lifeboat, which is so brilliantly read by Billy Fulford Brown, who actually reads a few pieces yes. in Babel in the audio of Babel. She's brilliant. Um, and the opening scene of The Last Lifeboat is an audio sample available to people, you know, as you listen before you buy. And it just, to me in my tracks, literally, and I wrote the words, you know, I was just like, this is amazing. She makes it really come to life. So yeah, audio is just superb at the minute. Yes, I am. I am so grateful every day for the huge yeah. amount of audiobooks that are available. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a it's a, it's a wonderful way to to read. Um, you know, and and you know, thankfully we we have that technology now, which is is fantastic. Well, I want to thank you so so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with me and let listeners know a little bit about who you are as a person and a writer. This was incredible. Um, I just really, really appreciate your time. You are so welcome, Shannon. Thank you for such a lovely interview. And uh, I think we could talk for a lot longer. It's true. <laughs> it's true. But it, it would be... Thank um, you so much. It would be a very long episode and, and my editor would not be happy with me. Yeah. <laughs> Can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? So, so I'm on all the social platforms. So at Hazel Gaynor on Twitter and Instagram, Hazel Gaynor Books on Facebook and just hazelgaynor.com on my website. And on there you can sign up for my monthly newsletter. And I have to ask you, since you reference social media, but do you describe your Instagram and Facebook photos? I don't, actually. And I, I know that I should. Um, so thank you for reminding me because I, I often, and it took me a while to understand what that alt on the on the text, on the images was yes. for. Um, and, and it's a really important part now of what we're sharing on social media so thank you for the reminder because it is something I've had in my mind to do more often it is my my goal um, as a podcaster in the book world to make the book world a little bit more accessible um, one author at a time that well here's one more so thank you <laughs> yay
And I will take it, I, I will take the bat on and I will make it my job to share that with all of my friends here in, in Ireland in the UK because it is as I say, you know, the technology is there. So, and it's really important to be as inclusive as we can. So yeah, we should all take that extra minute or two to, to describe our images. Absolutely. Yes. Once again, this has been a discussion with author Hazel Gaynor about her novel, The Last Lifeboat. And this released in the U.S. on June 13th. All right, so I'm moving on now to new books. Now, it doesn't seem like very long since our most anticipated releases of August episode went up, and actually it was just like two days. But here we are. I'm going to recap a few of those um, that are coming out today. First up is one that Melissa mentioned. This is Gone Tonight by Sarah Pekinen. We then have two of Natalia's most anticipated August releases. They are Out of Nowhere by Sandra Brown and At the Coffee Shop of Curiosities by Heather Weber. I am looking forward to Tastes Like Shocker, If Shakespeare Was an Anti, book two by Nisha Sharma. And Kristen is looking forward to Glimmers of You, this is Lost and Found, book three, by Catherine Coles. So now, after hearing about those that we have mentioned before, let's talk about some books that we haven't talked about. So I'm going to start with a historical fiction novel. This is The Princess. It's book three in Wendy Holden's Royal Outsiders series. And this was started a couple of years ago by a novel of the governess of Queen Elizabeth II. We then had a book about King Edward and his wife Wallace. And now we turn to Princess Diana. So this is The Princess, Royal Outsiders, book three by Wendy Holden. I want to move on now to mysteries and thrillers. If you love kind of procedural novels with a medical examiner bent, then this one is for you. This is The Bone Hacker, Temperance Brennan, book 22 by Kathy Reichs. Brooke is a big fan of this series. Um, my partner, Christine, has read several of these as well, although I don't know if she's quite caught up. Um, people who enjoy Patricia Cornwell's K. Scarpetta books tend to like these a lot as well. So once again, this is The Bone Hacker, Temperance Brennan, book 22, and it's by Kathy Reichs. Next up, we have To Catch a Storm. This is by Mindy Mejia, and this is a book that I want to save for the winter because it's like just what I love in a winter storm. So this is about a psychic and a physicist who team up to solve a crime in the midst of a snowstorm in Iowa. Perfect? Yes. This is To Catch a Storm by Mindy Mejia. Next up, we have Just Another Missing Person. This is the latest novel from Jillian McAllister, who I think is an amazing writer. She just continues to grow in her craft with each book she puts out. And so I am super, super excited for this one. Um, she has a phenomenal legal mind. 
and just creates these really stellar twisty thrillers. So if you've never read one of hers, do pick one up. And this new one is Just Another Missing Person. And again, it's by Jillian McAllister. We also have a new Katherine Ryan Howard book. This is called The Trap. And it is pretty much the nightmare of every woman who has ever been stranded out alone late at night. Apparently our heroine accepts a ride from a passing stranger and this does not go well for her. It's The Trap by Katherine Ryan Howard. Next up is Those We Thought We Knew. I've heard a lot of positive things about this book. It is by David Joy. It's gotten a bunch of pre-publication buzz. And it basically shows us the cracks in a small North Carolina community when a crime is committed. And now towns members are trying to figure out who is responsible, who they can trust. And I think it just really peels back the layers of what small town life can be like. So this is Those We Thought We Knew by David Joy. I want to move on now to a historical mystery. This is Broadway Butterfly by Sarah DeVello. And this is an author that I've never heard of. I'm not sure if this is her debut, um, but if it's not, and if I end up loving this book as much as I think I will, it's one, she's someone that I will be definitely uh, delving into her backlist. So this is Murder in the Roaring Twenties in New York City. And it's about a female reporter who is struggling in a male-dominated industry. And so now she's trying to solve this murder, both to figure out the truth, but also in hopes of helping her own career. This is Broadway Butterfly, and it's by Sarah Davello. All right, let's move on now to some romance. We have In the Likely Event by Rebecca Yaros. This is the author who wrote Fourth Wing, which was just hugely successful. Um, I haven't read it yet. I'm waiting for the next book to come out, but I've heard so many good things about it. This is very different, though. It is a sweeping romance about two people who meet on a plane and are kept apart by circumstances before eventually coming back together. So this is In the Likely Event, and it's by Rebecca Yaros. Next up, we have Positively Penelope by Pepper Basham. This author uh, came on my radar last year when she wrote a book called Authentically Izzy. And it's one that, despite the fact that this is an author who is marketed as like an inspirational or Christian fiction author, um, she's someone that I am very interested in checking out, even though those books are not usually what I choose to read, especially not in romance. But there's just something about the synopses of her books that really draws me in. So this is Positively Penelope, and it is by Pepper Basham. We also have The Honeymoon Crashers. This is by Christina Lauren, and it is an Audible original. So Christina Lauren released their big, you know, usual spring release in May. And so it's very exciting to see that they're putting out an Audible original this summer. And it is finally here. Once again, it is The Honeymoon Crashers by Christina Lauren. Next up, we have With Love from Cold World 
by Alicia Thompson. Alicia was on the podcast last year for her debut, Love in the Time of Serial Killers, which was so much fun. And now she's back with her second book. And it is pretty different. It doesn't seem to be quite as, I don't know, killery, um, if that's a word, as the first book. But definitely looks like it still possesses all the charm that I kind of came to expect from her when I read with um, when I read Love in the Time of Serial Killers. So this one is With Love from Cold World, and it is by Alicia Thompson. I also want to mention, this is a general fiction kind of family saga. This is The Connollys of County Down by Tracy Lang. And she is an author who writes these Irish sagas. Um, I don't know if they if they stray, like if we see them in both Ireland and America, but her stories do focus on Irish families and the things that tear them apart, bring them back together. Um, we Are the Brennans was her first book, and I have not read it yet, although I know a lot of people loved it. And now this one is here. It is The Connollys of County Down by Tracy Lang. And I want to mention a young adult novel. This is Swimming in a Sea of Stars by Julie Wright. It is about a young girl who is dealing with some suicidal ideation and depression. She goes back to school feeling really alone and ends up finding a community of people with similar struggles. So this is another one of these books that kind of peels back the layers of mental health and its effects on young people. So this is Swimming in a Sea of Stars, and it's by Julie Wright. I also have a young adult fantasy novel. This is Bring Me Your Midnight. I think this is a phenomenal title. It's by Rachel Griffin. And it's a novel that explores forbidden love and the pull between duty and desire. Griffin um, wrote a book called Wild is the Witch not too long ago. That is kind of what drew her to my, uh, my attention to her. And I will definitely be picking this up as well. It is Bring Me Your Midnight. And it's by Rachel Griffin. Last up, we have an adult fantasy novel, and this makes me so, so happy. This is Cushiel's Servant. It's Cushiel's Legacy, book four, by Jacqueline Carey. I read the very first Cushiel book, which is Cushiel's Dart, back in, I don't know, 2006, maybe, 2007. And it is this huge, epically dark, phenomenal read. Um, the first trilogy I flew through. And now we have the fourth book in the second series. And then there's also a third series. So it's interesting to me that she kind of went back and filled in some gaps in the second series rather than continuing with the third. But anything that Jacqueline Carey writes is sure to be amazing, especially if it is in the world of Cushiel. So this is Cushiel's Servant, Cushiel's Legacy, book four by Jacqueline Carey. And that, my friends, is all I have for you this week. 
I hope that all of you are enjoying your August so far. Um, you know, it's just a few hours old, but that's okay because when the first day of August is a phenomenal book release day, I say that bodes pretty well for the rest of the month. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.